Welcome back to the Future of Feeling podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Ugalik phillips and I'm bringing you interviews with some great minds helping build empathy in our tech-obsessed world. Today's show is part two of my interview with empathic AI producer and strategist Gawain Morrison. Last time, we went deep on data. This time, we're going to talk about the empathic tech market, Knight Rider, algorithmic bias, facial recognition, and of course, the age of Ultron. Enjoy! When you look at the the empathic technology market, it, I see it as sort of three three bands. You have the the, the you know the, the Chinese front runners that basically have access to the whole of the population's data sets that they want to access as training data sets and all the contact is. They have armies of people that can look at this and are looking at it. And then you've got your next layer, which is your Silicon Valley heads, which are talking like Elon Musk talking about his AI and his robots and the future sort of Neuralink and all the rest of this. That's a difference with where they don't have the same data set access, but they've got the vision and the drive and the goal. And then you have the third, which is everybody else. And um, most people have singularly been looking at a single data stream. So you've got a facial coding company that did really well or, they, or they're really crap. You've got a voice company that does really good oil, really crap. And they've all segmented over the last 10 years into a specialism where there's money. So is it health and well-being? Uh, is it medical diagnoses? Is it uh, automotive? Is it advertising? And they're sort of the same rinse and repeat there with a scary underpinning of let's track the living shit out of you from a surveillance economy perspective. That's always there. Mm-hmm. Um, and... But what's interesting, I think, now is that we've now come to the next level where there's enough individual data streams. There's such a volume of data. And the next leap is now to be the human brain where the, it needs to be able to appraise. And empathic technology can only be successful if it's able to appraise. If it's able to understand, is this a novel thing for you or not? Uh, have you got a specialism in your professional in this or are you, com- are you a complete novice? Uh, have you got training in? Is it a Tuesday? And you really hate Tuesdays. You know, it's that, all of that stuff, plus then how did your body react? Because then it can make a judgment call on whether it should interact with you. Should it serve you up some other stuff? Should it really just stop the car now until you go home? All these things that would be genuinely personally useful to you can only be done at an appraisal level. It can't be done at a single data stream level of, I looked at your face and I saw this. It can't do it. It'll just get some basic inferred insights correct uh, over and over. You're touching on something here that I think is super important to tease out, which is the why of of these technologies. If Mm. you, for some people, they will see huge benefit to the personal, um, huge personal benefit to knowing some of these things about themselves that they might not otherwise notice. But Mm. I get, but the main goal for a lot of this is to, just to sell us things, right? Yep. So, <laughs> so it's interesting because I guess this gets at how empathy is sort of a neutral thing that just exists and can be used in positive or negative or just you know neutral ways because yes, it's empathic technology because literally it can figure out how you're feeling, but then it's being used to do something that if you see empathy as a positive, is it empathic of these companies to 
use this kind of technology to sell us more things is the end goal it's always been there right oh of course it's always been there but i but i wonder if we if this language that we're using of, of empathy is a little bit misleading maybe because it's the technology is maybe empathetic but it's being used in a way that maybe understands how you feel but does it care about how you feel yeah so i think that's uh, we always saw this as sort of a four-step process so there's the data endpoint there's the um there's the I suppose the cleansing and preparing of the data for being able to do there's the processing and then there's the output mm-hmm. and those first three steps are just a pure sense it's just the same as the human system there's a bunch of senses that are it taking it in there is a bunch of filters to try and help it be useful by the time it hits the brain then the brain is taking it all together making a judgment call on whether i should do something about it and then there's an action uh, all of those steps, we could all be standing, like you, you and me could be standing uh, in a park and taking in this beautiful experience, exactly the same thing until a lion runs at us. And I might just uh, throw the trainers on or have the trainers on before I get going and say, see you later, Caitlin, good luck. And I've just buggered off. You know, that, that could be, and we've both had a completely different output and outcome from exactly the same set of scenarios uh, of input and data coming in while we do. Uh, or we might just hunker down and, and both go at the lion, or, you know, there's so many things you might choose to do. Your fear, fear and flight will be the main drivers there. But the output is down to the UX, it's down to the company, it's down to the brand, it's down to whether you're Cambridge Analytica or whether you are uh, a brand that cares about people. You know, the, what you choose to do with this is very much, it's a brand positioning thing, it's a UX thing, it's... What is it actually doing to your point? What, why? You know, if you're doing it to try and, I don't know, I'm trying to think of something that would be uh, completely useless. Um, but I'm sure there are many, many ways we live our life where we just don't need a technology to do it. You just need to go and hug a tree or uh, have a laugh with a mate or whatever it is. And that does way more than an empathic technology does. And I think this is where what we all thought it could be and the utopian vision versus a dystopian vision and where does it go and all this. I think that's all probably started to settle somewhat insofar as the technology can do some great things. It's never, unless you plug something into your brain, I'm going to have access to every data uh, point that you've ever created. It's not going to ever be able to be truly personal and empathic to you as a human. That's not to say that it won't in some 50, 100 years time if this all continues to go ahead. but the what is it useful now will sort of set the precedent of where we go with all these things and health and well-being, mental health and well-being, um, physical being, your driver monitoring systems. If you're, you know, these are these are genuinely useful things. They are mm-hmm. genuinely useful outputs of this. And I don't personally mind if uh, a recommendation is more particular to me and it's got it right at a certain time of day, as long as I know data has not been misused or it's being used to do an aggregate picture that's going to be used by others you know it's that's where we get into tricky water and, and i as love long the as idea consented right yes exactly that exactly that and i think really we're going to find ourselves where there's only a handful of companies that are going to be good aggregators in terms of and when i say good i don't mean good as good players and good digital citizens they're just going to be bloody good at doing it and they're probably the ones that we all see around us today already the um, 
but are they going to be good digital citizens? Are they going to actually help? Uh, I think that's going to be a lot more challenging, mostly because it's an international marketplace and it costs money to deal with international or national infrastructure rules and regulations. They're doing to a degree already, but they have to wait until they're brought to court before they'll make a judgment call on it. Right. Yeah, I just, I have these two, I just think it's so interesting to think about the, 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 and I'm, I don't really have the language for it, I guess, but the empathy in the technology and then the empathy of the people who want to use the technology for their, you know, sort of subjects or customers. I almost feel like mm. we need different words for, for that. Like maybe effective computing was better because, that, because it separated what the computing is doing from, I, I guess, the motivation or the intention of the, of the people. And I mean, as you said, UX has always been about empathy. Um, but then, but there's UX for how do you use this product? And then the impact, what impact does it actually have on your life? I think that's the piece that's been a little bit missing in the past. And I do see, and that's part of why I wrote The Future of Feeling was, I noticed that there were more people who were looking at that piece of it, of, you know, whether it's someone who used to work for Google and left and um, is now explaining how all of that works, or, you know, the guy who wrote the thing about the, how social media is a slot machine, and they know that, and it, like, it's, it's a dopamine release, and um, how that actually affects your mental health. I think it's, what I was encouraged by in the in the research I did was that it seemed like more people were thinking about that at the at the beginning part of some of these newer technologies. But as you talk about, it is all ultimately a commercial enterprise, right? Or exactly. it's an academic enterprise and no one can see it or or be involved in it unless you're in that academic institution. So yeah, where is the space? for real empathy in this web is kind of a hard place to find. It is, it is. And I do honestly think it's got to come down to the, to the HMI. You know, it's the interface, it's the communication of the interface and the communication of what is this thing doing. Um, Human machine a, interface, HMI? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, not that we're going to get to it. It might not be, it would probably kind of annoying, but, you know, Kit from... Uh, it was Knight Rider, right? So it was oh, a show, okay. Knight Rider. Uh, and obviously Kit could understand Michael Knight and preempt when he was going to be a bit reckless and always a bit concerned, whatever, but would have a conversation with him. That kind of conversation is what's missing in our interfaces and our technology, and I think would enhance the, the trust component. What I think is going to be interesting is now Again, not necessarily with Mr. Musk's uh, robots, but in general with robots, the dialogue or that communication, that human to machine interaction is, I think, where the empathy has a place to live mm. uh, because you can start to build a trusted relationship. Now, uh, maybe dangerous as well, letting your guard down and just letting all this hang out and your, your whole home private life is there to be recorded because the mics and cameras will have to be on permanently and do you trust them not to be taking it and all that. Stuff. Plus the argument of Bezos is Mr. Uh, AI learning in the in in their 
Alexa's was the microphone has to be on permanently so that our AI can, our AI can learn and be personal to you. So that all has to be on. That I'm not comfortable with. Yeah. Would you say that like Iron Man and Jarvis is another example? Perfect. Of, but you've, yeah. got, you've got a relationship. But then, but then I was just watching Age of Ultron. So <laughs> then you've got the Ultron dystopia situation. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's all of our good and bad and human, as has been said many times before, it will be rolled out, rolled out and shone, uh, a light shone on it in the digital space, regardless of what it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, AI is currently doing a very good job of shining a light on all of the things that we've done manually that are, yeah, I would say, a challenge to us being good humans. Mm-hmm. And it's good. It's good. It's good in that respect. But is anything actually being done about it? Or are we just programming those biases into the system? I think that's a great point, actually, though, in a positive way that because a lot of people have been have been saying with the pandemic that it shined a light on a lot of things that have been going on under the surface all the time that have made life hard, like in public health, you know, social drivers of health not being able to get transportation you need or all these things, not having access to food came to the surface even more strongly when you, you know, had to be in lockdown or when you had COVID. Um, And it sounds like you're saying that AI and us noticing all the biases in these algorithms is kind of showing us, hey, when we were just doing this on paper, this is what we were doing. (laughs) And now it's highlighting that. And I know, I have a feeling you're going to say it's always been this way, but the frustrating, <laughs> the frustrating part is that you need to con- like, we're still trying to convince people that that bias is showing up in these algorithms because you have the response where people will say, Oh, a computer can't be racist. And it's like, if only it were that simple. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 Well, the dude did not to say that they were going to have, that it was a dude or that they were actually racist on the outside, but you know, if they if they were racist and they did program it, then it will be racist. Right. You know, it's it's if the training data sets were done because the chief psychologist happened to think that all criminals were Hispanic or black, then here we go. The training data sets that were even had this, an unconscious bias. Again, I mean, there were back a few years ago the unconscious bias with um, like female names. I think female sounding names were kind of getting rejected from this resume. Hmm um algorithm because they hadn't typically been hired in the past because they hadn't really hired a lot of females and (laughs) that was almost like an unconscious bias but yeah and there's a lot of that and and really the only way to do it is to be able to audit these and the only way to be able to audit them is that you've got a body that exists that can audit them and doesn't uh, release the findings negatively or at least that you've got a framework where any uh, bias or problems in the algorithms uh, can be identified, can be handed back as a report that's not commercially destroying them. You mm. know, and it's sort of that you're not going, hey, well, we found that actually the last five years you've been running an algorithm that said we're all happy and actually we're thoroughly depressed. You, know, you can't you can't do that. Uh, no, you can call them on it and you can give them maybe you've got 90 days to do something about it and you're gonna have to then come clean and tell people, but within your control of um, how you're going to rectify it because I think people are happy enough to say yes okay fair cop we've got this is a problem um, and people will be sympathetic to that 
if you've got a way to be able to deal with it and then can follow through on it. If you are hiding behind the mask and battering on to make as much money as you can, that's not okay. I'm not optimistic about a panel of some kind having that kind of power in the United States. Maybe we'll see it in another country and it'll be a model, you know, like a that mm. we can follow. I just, yeah, don't see something like that getting getting approval here. Yeah, I don't know. You see, I, I think you're right. It'll happen somewhere outside of America, but you can see that even individual states have taken it upon themselves to deal with public um, face recording in public spaces. And right. that, that was a big leap, especially when you got so much pressure from the police side of things to say, don't you dare take away our powers of this camera stuff and be able to do some pre-crime stuff and, you know, um, no harm to America, but they do love a good... Uh, good guy, bad guy story with guns and police, you know? So it was a big deal, I think, to be able to get facial coding in public spaces um, shut down in a few places. Mm-hmm. And so there is, there's definitely uh, a nervousness about it. And there's definitely, even in the big, the big Silicon Valley companies, there's a nervousness in it. Now, internally, they could be battering on with stuff, but the fact that they went even to the, and this is my cynical side, to the effort of them setting up their own internal ethical groups to evaluate AI, regardless of what that AI is, and then to try and look at product strategy, services strategy that has to be funneled through these internal ethics groups to be able to evaluate whether they should or shouldn't proceed or do risk assessments on them or have teams internally that has key milestones to do evaluation and assessments. This is all important and there is an effort to do that. As to whether it definitely stops them, as to whether it actually has an impact or whether they just twin track it and one has an internal ethics team looking at one and one doesn't and the yeah. other end they just use whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, and it all has, a, it's all cost. It's all PR, always going to be interwoven with all these things. But um, yeah, I think, I, I, honestly, from a hope perspective, there's plenty of good people and there's plenty of people that are volunteering their time to try and make uh, things better. And that's across all manner of organizations. You've got all the guys from the Electronic Frontier Foundation right through to the IEEE. You've got all these in-betweens that are all out there pushing hard to make sure that even if we don't understand it, or even if we aren't even aware that it's going on, that they're fighting on behalf of our digital rights and data rights and trying to lobby um, governments and companies to be able to make sure they do a better job of it all. Yeah, and on the theme of history repeating itself, I feel like it's been the Wild West. Um, on the theme of history repeating itself and of the United States enjoying good guys, bad guys, um, <laughs> it's been the Wild West for a while, right? And it seems like we, I don't know about you, but I feel that the that era is almost sort of coming to an end and we're getting to a point where there's going to have to, at least in the United States, there's going to have to be some kind of legislation or new regulatory situation or something kind of the center can't hold too much longer but it'll be interesting to see what that actually looks like and without I mean then you get to the question of you don't want to do that all of this at the expense of innovation yeah oh absolutely you can't you can't crush the innovation the the, the easy way to do that is to force the big companies to siphon off the pot that goes into innovation for startups and universities 
and that they all do an aggregate of cash that then goes into that innovation budget so they don't just benefit from it and don't just keep buying up companies that do it. See if we that can get be them to pay to some taxes first and then... <laughs> Always a good starting point, yes. <laughs> well, it has been so great to catch up with you. Um, yep, I yep, love to speak to you I again. don't want to take too much of your time. It's been almost an hour. I wonder if you can, though, tell me a little bit about what you're doing now and if, if any listeners want to find you and um, hear more, uh, how they can do that. Yeah, to be honest with you, I've gone a little bit underground for a wee while here. Since I'm finished, sadly, as part of COVID, we were uh, all the R&D budgets for cars got sort of shut down a bit while it's come out the other side. So it's all starting to come alive again. Um, and I'm largely uh, talking to folks from a consultative basis about all kinds of future technologies, not just empathic technologies. And uh, so uh, the next the next few few months, uh, we'll be able to say a bit more about what's coming down the line. Okay, well, please stay in touch. I want to hear that. And if it's Jarvis for everyone, I want to get on the list. <laughs> <laughs> as long as it's not Ultron, yes. Exactly. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you. Um, enjoy the rest of the that beautiful sunny day. Thank um, you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the Future of Feeling podcast. As a reminder, this is a limited series right now, and I am the sole producer. I'd love to keep making it, and you can help by following on Spotify and sharing with a friend or two. You can also send feedback, questions, and guest suggestions by heading to caitlinugalik.com. That's K-A-I-T-L-I-N-U-G-O-L-I-K.com and click the email me button. Talk soon.